verses 22 through 32. Hear the word of the Lord. That same night he rose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven children, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. And when the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, Let me go, for the day is broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, What is your name? And he said, Jacob. And then he said, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men, and you have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, Please tell me your name. But he said, Why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, it's good to be with you all this morning. If you... uh, Came in a few minutes late. My name is Alex Dean. I am an associate pastor over at New St. Peter's, just uh, down the road from here. And it's a privilege to be with you this morning and worshiping as brothers and sisters in Christ's church in this city. I love this city. It's, it's where I grew up. It's my hometown. And after some time away at seminary, my family was blessed with a call to come back here and minister in my hometown. But maybe some of you have had this experience. You have moved away from your your hometown for a time, and you have gone back, and you realize, perhaps for the first time, that there is some baggage to unpack when you get there, right? Do you know the experience I'm talking about? Like, there's that old relationship that never quite got worked out, or the, the place that you have to drive by every day that reminds you of some blunder from your younger years, Homecomings can be strange. I, I completed my undergrad here in town at Dallas Baptist University many years ago, and recently I enrolled there to do some, some more graduate work, and uh, I had this painful experience where I was meeting with my advisor, and here I am, a distinguished reverend who has been away for many years, and, uh, and I'm registering for classes, and she pulls up my profile, and there is my a school ID picture from 2005. And uh, you guys don't know me, uh, but suffice it to say that uh, that was an extremely embarrassing moment for me because the little rectangle at the top of the ID could not contain the the long hair that flowed down out of the picture that I had in those days, right? Uh, Have you ever had that kind of strange homecoming experience? Well, whether or not you have, we're all going to enter into it together this morning in the story of Jacob's homecoming. So I want to set the stage a little bit for this story. We pick up here with Jacob in Genesis chapter 32, and he is on the road. He's a fugitive from his brother 
Esau after having stolen the blessing that was to be his by birthright. And so, at the advice of his parents, he flees. And he goes to the homeland of his grandfather Abraham, and he meets there Laban. And this is where that, that famous Rachel and Leah story ensues. That's not exactly a paradigm for like biblical marriage and family, but nevertheless, um, he meets his wives there. And embedded in that story also is his struggle with his uncle Laban. And, uh, and as time goes on, the Lord blesses Jacob and he increases in wealth. And he now has to go on the run from Laban because there can only be one sheriff in town. And so the Lord tells him it's time to go back home. But of course, that presents a problem. You can kind of feel the the tension building in the story as we get to this point in Genesis 32. We know that a showdown is about to happen between these two brothers. And frankly, Jacob is scared to death. And why shouldn't he be? He's just sent a scout party ahead and they've come back and they've told him, Esau's headed this way with 400 men. And remember, he vowed to kill you, that, that little bit of the story. So this is what you call a climactic point in the story. And what happens next does not disappoint. Jacob enters into a dramatic, an epic wrestling match, not with Esau, but with this mysterious figure that we'll learn about as the story goes on. So we're going to enter into that story a little bit this morning. But before we do, let me pray and ask God to show us Jesus. God of Jacob, we seek now your face revealed to us in the Christ of Scripture. By your Spirit, would you shine in our hearts to reveal the knowledge of the glory of the face of, of God in the face of Jesus, that we might receive your blessing, O God of our salvation. Amen. So, one of the most beloved fictional works by C.S. Lewis is the novel Till We Have Faces. You may have read it or heard of it. It's certainly one of my favorites. It's a, it's a really masterful, imaginative retelling of the myth of Cupid and Psyche, but the twist is it's told from the perspective of Psyche's sister, Aruel. And the novel itself is presented at the outset as Aruel's complaint against the gods. Now, by all accounts, she has many reasons to complain. She, um, she's kind of the, your, your stereotypical ugly older sister, and you've heard those kinds of stories before. She uh, was born with a severe deformity, and that caused her father to scorn her all her life long, and her mother died when she was very young, and, and her life was marked by sickness and suffering and trauma. And so her prevailing emotions are disappointment and bitterness and loneliness, but her greatest complaint is that the gods have taken from her the one beautiful thing in her life, and that's her sister, Psyche. And so throughout the story, you read about Oruel's complaint and her attribution of cruelty to the gods and her desire to appear before them to really to argue her case, to lodge her complaint. And at the end of the novel, she finally gets that chance. So she finds herself face-to-face with the gods in the divine court. And she has this tome of a book with her that she's written that contains everything, her whole complaint. I mean, this this thing is longer than the PCA Book of Church order, and she is ready to lay it all out there. And so she lays it out there, and eventually she is silenced 
by a divine judge. She's in this heavenly court and things just go silent. And in that moment of silence, Aruel finally realizes something. She realizes as she has been reading her complaint that it's actually much smaller than she thought it was. And she'd been reading it over and over and over and over. But something else was strange about that reading. She notices that her voice was different. It was strange to her own ears until she came to realize that she was hearing for the first time her real voice. And that's where I'll pick up and read to you just a few lines from the novel told in the first person by Aruel herself. She says, There was silence in the dark assembly long enough for me to have read my book out yet again. At last the judge spoke. Are you answered? He said. Yes said I. The complaint was the answer. To have heard myself making it was to be answered. When the time comes to you at which you will be forced at last to utter the speech which has lain at the center of your soul for years, you'll not talk about joy of words. I saw well why the gods do not speak to us openly nor let us answer. Till that word can be dug out of us, why should they hear the babble that we think we mean? How can they meet us face to face till we have faces? Do you hear what Arwell is saying? She, she, she finally stands face to face before the gods to demand an answer for her lifetime of struggle. She's saying that as she wrestled with her complaint in the presence of the gods, she at last is seeing herself as she really is. She at last is able to say the things she's been trying to say All her life long, she begins to perceive an answer to her questions, but it's not the answer she expected. And that's why she finally concludes this. I know now, Lord, why you utter no answer. You are yourself the answer. Before your face, all questions die away. What other answer would suffice? You see, friends, Aruel had wrestled all her life long with her anger and her self-justification and her struggle for independence from the gods that she was skeptical of. And by the end of it all, she met the gods face to face and left with the only answer that would suffice. And as one commentator on Jacob's story points out, you can't help but see in her story an echo of the story of Jacob wrestling with God and therefore the story of all Israel, you and me who are engaged in this life of struggle and faith and doubt and hope and unanswered questions. See, I think the story of Jacob teaches us that wrestling with God is the answer at least this side of the promised land. I think it teaches us that the people of God must wrestle with Him in weakness and dependence, obtaining His blessing through His faithfulness to His promise and not through our own strength. And so I hope that as we walk through Jacob's story just for a few minutes, you will see in it a reflection of your own, but most importantly that you would meet in it the God who comes to meet you even when your past haunts you. Again, we meet Jacob on the road, and 
And we do this with so many patriarchs, we find them sojourning. And, and this is that homecoming experience that we talked about. And, and there are some things that Jacob will have to confront when he comes home. He'll have to confront his past. You may know the story, goat's hair on his arms and stealing the blessing that was supposed to belong to his brother Esau. And so, and so Esau has vowed to kill him and Jacob hatches a plan. This is classic Jacob. He's a, he's a planner. He's a schemer. He hatches a plan to attempt to appease his brother with a gift, but he also hedges his bets by sending a scout party ahead. Uh, and that happened earlier in chapter 32. And, and, and so they return to report, look, Esau's coming this way and he's got 400 warriors with him. You can see why Jacob might be afraid. So here he is on the edge of the Jabbok River and he sends his family ahead of him. <clears throat> Maybe he did that to provide a <clears throat> safer passage for them, but primarily because he realizes that the crisis of his life, the climactic event to which his story has been pointing is upon him, and he needs to be alone to wrestle with God. Look at verse 34 in Genesis, excuse me, verse 24 in Genesis 32. And Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. Pretty, pretty weird, right? Pretty cryptic. We'll get back to what's going on there a bit more in a moment. But recognize this. Jacob's past is clearly haunting him. He's wronged his brother. He's been on the run. His father-in-law has tricked him into marrying the wrong daughter and forced him to work seven more years to, to, to obtain the other. And his wives are bickering and boasting about the children that they bear to Jacob. By the way, do you know what Jacob does when... When his beloved wife, Rachel, expresses to him her deep anguish because of her barrenness, this happens in chapter 30. He says, why are you looking at me? I'm not God. I can't fix your problem. How cruel. Especially when contrasted with his father, Isaac, who a generation prior had prayed to the Lord for his barren wife. See, Jacob spent his life struggling and wrestling both with and against those who were closest to him. Always scheming, always running, always wrestling, never settled. Seminary professor and counselor Chuck DeGroat speaks about our past using a metaphor borrowed from the poet Robert Bly, and he says that our lives are a story of a a long, invisible bag that we drag behind us. And he says that sometimes early in our childhood, we, we learn that the world can be a difficult place to navigate, right? This is a fallen world, and it's difficult to find your way, but we find ways to navigate it. Maybe anger, or maybe attention-seeking, or perfectionism, or detachment, and we put those things in our long, invisible bags, by the time we're adolescents, that bag has grown quite a bit because of the things we've endured, trauma or abuse or grief or the ways we've sinned and disappointed others or been disappointed by others. But what begins to happen is we begin to understand that we can bury some of those dark things deep in that bag and seek to keep them buried so that really by the time we're middle-aged, our bag has become so heavy from the things that we don't want others to know about us. So we exist in this complex web of relationships and vocation and family and church and society and different people get to peek in our bags at different times, but we learn 
never to open them fully, never to be exposed, until, that is, we are engaged in wrestling with a God who knows every bit of our story and comes to meet us still. Jacob here finds himself alone, wrestling with God, opening the long invisible bag that he's dragging behind him, and he's a bit terrified of what he's going to find within. And I imagine, mainly because I know myself, that maybe you've been there too. Sin and shame and trauma and grief and woundedness and promise and disappointment. So men, brothers, I don't know if you've had this experience, but when I was in my early 20s, I was just awful. I don't know if any, that, maybe that's just me, but just self-serving, self-absorbed, arrogant, destructive in relationships with just about everyone I knew. It's, it's really the part of me that I keep stuffed in my long, invisible bag and have for many years. That is, until just a few years ago. On February 8th of 2018, my firstborn son died suddenly in his sleep. And so the road that our family has walked over the past nearly four years has been a dark and difficult one. But one of the remarkable things that happened in the Lord's providence is that my wife and I got to sit in grief counseling with an elder from our church. And, and I'd, I'd never been in grief counseling before. I thought we were just going to talk about our son and move on. And we did. We talked about him and we talked about our grief. But, but this father in the faith had the wisdom to know that my own woundedness went even deeper than that. And so he invited me to start opening that long, invisible bag and begin to engage it, begin to wrestle with it, begin to wonder what God would do if I told my story, warts and grief and all. It's a scary prospect, really. It's one that I continue to wrestle with, but even in that, the God of Jacob seems to meet us where our fears take us. You know, for all of Jacob's life, he's wrestled with this idea of how he would be involved in the Abrahamic blessing. So he's heard from his father and his grandfather that the Lord would bless the children of Abraham with promised land and promised descendants. And he'd even been told by his parents, it seems, that he and not Esau would be the one through whom that promise would be perpetuated. And so it's natural to wonder and to fear here how can that happen if my brother wipes me out? And so he wrestles with the God who made the promise. Now, how do we know Jacob is actually wrestling with God? And what kind of theophany, what kind of appearance of God is this? Well, it becomes clear from Jacob's persistent desire for a blessing that he reckons this man with whom he wrestles to be a superior you might remember that story in, earlier in Genesis the, the, where Abraham goes to meet Melchizedek. And, and we learn there that the greater must bless the lesser. That's how blessings work. And so Jacob has recognized this is a superior, but he's also recognized that this is no mere man because he later calls this place Peniel, face of God. The rest of 
Scripture understands this event to be a glorious theophany, a glorious appearance, and particularly an appearance of the angel of the Lord, who in the Old Testament most mysteriously represents God's presence and glory. So Jacob is wrestling with God, and he knows it. And the crazy thing is, he actually seems to be winning for a while. The angel of the Lord sees that Jacob's strength is formidable. And by the way, it was. Just a few chapters before this, Jacob impresses his father-in-law by moving a stone that it probably took three men to set in place. So he was strong, but he wasn't just physically strong. He was also clever. Remember, Jacob was the schemer. And yet a prevailing theme of his life is that his own self-sufficiency and his reliance on his own strength and cleverness are really a mask for his fears. And therefore, they cause all kinds of relational destruction. Jacob's a wrestler. He, he wrestled with Esau and with Laban and with his wives, always seeking to take matters into his own hands, relying on his self-sufficiency. You see, that's where his fears take him. And yet, God meets him there. And Jacob finally realizes this. That's why he won't let the angel go. Look at verse 25. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go, for the day is broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So the Lord lets Jacob wrestle for a little while, and then when he's had enough, he wrecks his hip with just a touch. Now, as I, I hope I demonstrated in the children's lesson, when you're down a leg, it's pretty hard to wrestle. I imagine there's many parts of the body that are important for wrestling. I've not done it myself, but I think the hip is pretty important. You have to plant your foot and engage, but God blows up Jacob's hip. But Jacob keeps going. Why? Because he's finally found the right person to wrestle with. And he knows that he must obtain the blessing he seeks from this God alone. I love what Derek Kidner says, this conflict brought to a head the battling of a lifetime. It was against God, not Esau or Laban, that Jacob had been pitting his strength as he now discovered. So let me ask you this, where do your fears take you? So, since I've already opened my long invisible bag before you this morning, I'll tell you that my fears often move me into conflict with people, right? Like, I'm afraid of being found out, so I divert attention to another, or I'm afraid of what might happen to my children, so I'm harsh with them when I see them doing something that they don't understand is dangerous, or I'm afraid of my future because I feel out of control and I take it out on the one person who I know is stuck with me, my wife. Where do your fears take you? In the last 18 months or so, where have your fears about everything going on in our society taken you? Do you know one reason why I think that social media has become just such a dumpster fire for political name-calling and conspiracy theorizing and all that stuff? Because we're afraid. And we want to wrestle, but we don't know who to wrestle with. 
Who are you wrestling with? The Lord wants to meet you in your wrestling, and He wants to answer you. Which brings us really to the conclusion of this episode in Jacob's story as we see how our God answers us. Look at verse 27. And Jacob, and he said to him, What is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Now, you'll recall certainly that there's another patriarch in the narrative of Genesis who has gone through a similar name changing ceremony, we'll call it. But there's a significant difference between that name-changing ceremony and this one. In Genesis 17, God is sealing His covenant with Abraham, and He's sealing it with the sign of circumcision, and He simply declares to Abram, your name shall no longer be Abram, but Abraham. It's going to be consonant with God's call on him to be a father of a multitude of nations. But here, in this name-changing ceremony, God does something first. He asks Jacob his name. Why? He knows it, obviously, but he asks nevertheless, and he asks in response uh, to, to Jacob's request for a blessing. But remember what Jacob's name means. Heel grabber, cheater, schemer. Hasn't that been true? Isn't that the part of Jacob that he's kept hidden in his long, invisible bag for his whole life? Do you know what the Lord is doing here? He's leading Jacob in a confession of sin. I am Jacob. Heel grabber, schemer, cheater. But look what happens next. No longer shall your name be Jacob, but now it's Israel. He strives with God. In other words, Jacob, your long, invisible bag is no longer the thing that defines you. I am. Your sins are forgiven, and your long and, and your, your story is wrapped up now in the story of redemption, and the things that you think display your weakness are the stuff I use to show forth my glory. Isn't this how our Lord answered the apostle Paul when he begged three times, For his thorn in the flesh to be taken away, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. And look how Jacob understands this encounter. Verse 30, so Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, for I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. I've seen God face to face. He is the answer. And he wants to work in my weakness for his glory. Notice, too, that Jacob walks away from there limping. I love what the great preacher Martin Lloyd-Jones said about that. He said, what does a person look like who has truly met God? He walks with a limp. Do you know what's happened here? 
the Lord himself has reached into Jacob's long invisible bag and graciously exposed his past, but he hasn't left him there. He's pardoned his sin. He's wrestled with him in his doubt. He's weakened him to draw near and he's wrapped his story up in the grand story of redemption that he has been writing since before the foundation of the world so that now every time someone asks Jacob about his limp, what can he say? I met God face to face. And friends, know this. This is what God in the gospel has done for you. John's gospel tells us that no one has ever seen God, but Jesus has made him known. He was revealed to show us God's glory, to redeem us from sin, to wrap up our stories in the grand story of redemption. He knows everything about your long, invisible bag, and he loves you. Didn't he show us this when he met with the woman at the well and he invited her to open her bag and tell her, tell him about her five husbands? Didn't he show us this when touched by an unclean woman with a bloody discharge, he sought her out in a crowd and looked her in the eye and said, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace, be healed of your disease. This is the good news of the gospel, that the God you worship knows everything about you, all the hidden parts, and yet he loves you. Jesus Christ came as God in the flesh to give up his life for the forgiveness of your sins, that they might no longer be the thing that defines you, but instead the scars that he bears, the limp that he walks with, so to speak, that's what defines you. His weakness in death and therefore his exaltation in glory. And that means that you're free. You're free to wrestle with God, to express doubt and to share with him your anger and your fears, to open up that long invisible bag and let him show you how your past is wrapped up in the beautiful story that he is writing. You are safe in Christ God knows and loves you. And then, get this, as Jacob would soon find out, not only is your past redeemed, but your future lies in the land of promise. And you will sojourn to get there. Your life will be filled with struggle and hardship and suffering and remaining sin and all kinds of wrestling. But when you arrive on that shore you will no longer see dimly as in a mirror. You will see your God face to face. At the end of Till We Have Faces, after Aruel makes her complaint against the gods, she's taken on a tour of the heavenly court by her old tutor whom she calls the fox. And the fox in life was a skeptic. He, he was always uh, encouraging Aruel and Psyche to distrust the divine. But in death, he realizes how far off he really was. And so as he takes Arwell on a tour of the heavenly court, he leads her through a series of images that depict her past from Psyche's perspective. And he gets to tell her how wrong he was in his limited and skeptical perspective and how beautiful now he sees life to be in light of eternity and how beautiful especially was the life of Arwell's sister, Psyche, And Aruel asks a striking question. 
Will we all grow this beautiful one day? The fox answers, They say so, but even I who am dead do not yet understand more than a few words of the God's unbroken language. Only this I know. This age of ours will one day be distant past, and the divine nature can change that past. Nothing is yet in its true form. Brothers and sisters, on that day, when we take our true form, I suspect we will finally be able to understand how all this light and momentary affliction, years of pain and struggle and grief has prepared for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, let's pray. God of Jacob, we do seek your face, and we seek it in the way that you have revealed it to us through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who shows us your glory, who embodies for us the path of discipleship that you call us to walk on, and who died in our place and rose from the grave, who redeems our past and secures our future. And so as we prepare now to come to your communion table, we ask that you would meet us there. Doubt and wrestle and fear and struggle, would you meet us there? Would you engage engage us once again with your love for us on display in the broken body and shed blood of Jesus? Amen.